Hello and welcome to this latest Microphilosophy podcast with me, Julian Baggini. Now, do you gossip? Are you ever rude? Do you laugh at sick jokes? Are you ever snobby? Few of us could honestly answer no to all these questions, but these are hardly important transgressions. Or are they? Well, in The Virtues of Our Vices, philosopher Emrys Westacott argues that we should take apparently small peccadilloes like these more seriously. I talked to him about the book at an event in Foyles' Bristol Bookshop, organised in association with the Bristol Festival of Ideas. I mean, for quite a long time, you have been interested in what people might think of as the small stuff, the little things, the everyday elements, whereas people associate moral philosophy with the big debates. What is it that makes you interested in those apparently smaller things? Okay, well, you're right that... Um, if you take a typical textbook in applied ethics or something like that, you'll find chapters on abortion, environmental ethics, capital punishment, euthanasia, um, nuclear deterrence, this kind of thing. And those are important. I, I, mean, I wouldn't say let's stop discussing those at all. But most of us don't have the option of commuting a death sentence, right? Most of us don't very often in life at all have a decision to make about either abortion or euthanasia. Whereas a decision, for instance, should I tell so-and-so what I know about someone else. That's the kind of thing that does crop up pretty regularly. The question, have I just insulted that person? Or did they just insult me? Or was I insensitive? Was I rude? Or someone tells you a joke and you laugh at her and then later you think, that joke was pretty sick. What kind of person am I that I laugh at that joke? (laughs) These are questions, right, which, okay, they're not so big, but they they engage us on an everyday basis. We shouldn't underestimate how important they are to our lives. I'll give you an example. If someone stole your camera, you'd be pretty upset. That's theft. Theft, by the way, we moral philosophers can tell you is wrong, it's bad, don't do it. (laughs) But if someone, say a colleague at work, simply snubbed you, that would probably grate on me, would rankle with me for a longer time, might upset me more than having my camera stolen. It can really get under your skin and and it can destroy a relationship. I think that a lot of people are actually quite sceptical about what a kind of rigorous philosophical approach can actually say about these things. And now certainly, you know, in the book you say you don't think these are issues where you can get absolute certainty, but you do talk about reasonableness and coherence. What level of kind of reasonableness are we looking for? One of the things I do a few places in the book is I attempt definitions, right? In a, in a fairly um, analytic tradition, I suppose, I attempt a definition of rudeness. I attempt a definition of snobbery and, to some extent, of gossiping. And in doing that, I, I'm certainly trying to be rigorous. It seems to me that what I end up with there are not absolute watertight definitions, because I just don't think the concepts lend themselves to that. It's a little bit like, I mean, you can't define a rainy day as when there's two inches of rain. It's, it's a grey area, right? And in the same way, you can't absolutely define an act as rude or not rude. But I think that the attempt, and this is what I argue in the book, the attempt to think very hard about how you might try to define these concepts is worthwhile, because in, in the process, in the very process, you clarify your thinking. I don't know if you find this, that sometimes philosophers spend a very long time defining something, and then when they come to the conclusion, people look at it and go, well, that's fairly obvious, right? You know, it doesn't look very surprising. Yeah, and I resent that. Yeah, and you resent that. (laughs) I don't blame you, because often 
what they're not appreciating is, in fact, this is very carefully worded, and it, had it been worded a bit differently, it would have been critical. So let, let's, let's try this out on the rudeness one. So you're suggesting that for rudeness, an act is rude if it meets two conditions. One, it violates a social convention, and B, if the violation were deliberate, so if the violation were deliberate, this would indicate a lack of concern for another person's feelings, or in other words, a willingness to cause someone pain. Could you just sort of say a few things about why you had to be that precise? Okay, I, th- I think that um, every act of rudeness will be the violation of some convention. That, that's the platform there. And I think that it's important to say the convention doesn't have to be, say, unwritten. It can be, it can be written down, it can be a law of the land, or it can be a, a generally accepted norm of a particular culture or subculture. The tricky part of the definition is the second part, right, where I say, if it were deliberate, it's the conditional statement, if it were deliberate, that would show a lack of concern for someone else's feelings. You could take a, a kind of crude example, like someone spitting in someone's face. I, you know, I think that that's rather obviously meets the definition. But what about something more subtle? I, I use the example... Let's say um, eating spaghetti with your hands. So, you know, we're going to go out for dinner later on. Suppose I eat spaghetti with my hands. I assume that would make you feel uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, if you're a normal person. <laughs> Which, I mean, again... I just I, get my head down on the plate <laughs> and suck it up, you know. Or to take another example, uh, supposing you go to a funeral and you wear in very, very informal, scruffy clothing. I mean, maybe you don't have any better clothing, right? Maybe you're totally unaware of the conventions or something like that. But if, if this violation of the convention is deliberate, right, if it were deliberate, then it seems to me that you, you would be showing an indifference to other people's feelings there, the people who you know, are close to the person whose funeral it is, who expect respect to be shown and this kind of thing in the normal conventional way, which is, you know, formal attire. But the, but the thing is, is, if it were intentional, so even if it's not intentional, it still classifies as rude? Yes. I think that it has to be that way, because otherwise you'd have a, you'd have a definition which said only intentional rudeness was rude. And surely we all recognise the, the fact that we are unintentionally rude sometimes. Later we, we'll say things like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I was, I, that was so rude of me to just start talking on the cell phone when you were trying to talk to me. You, you wouldn't not apologise simply because you... you um, didn't do it intentionally. That's a good point. I was playing squash the other day and I didn't offer someone a let, if anyone sort of knows the rules of squash. And that was because in that situation, I just didn't think I needed to. I didn't think it was appropriate. I didn't think it was. This guy took really great offence because he thought, you know, I, I should have offered him the let. Now, I was perfectly willing to accept the fact that I had, as you said, unintentionally been rude or inconsiderate and to apologise. What I resented, though, was he thought... I was doing it intentionally. So he, he should have read your book and realised that my rudeness could have been completely unintentional and still rude. He was right to think I was rude, but he was wrong to think that necessarily meant I was intentional. One question that comes out for me with this is that when you think about things like rudeness, politeness, you, you're kind of in that area where some people would think you're talking more about like etiquette and manners rather than morality. Now, is it actually the case, though, that there just isn't a sharp line between those two things. Uh, I mean, it's a really good question. The answer is I don't really know. I, I was wondering when I was writing this, I was wondering if I could make a sharp distinction, and I found I couldn't. Mm. Uh, it seems to me that there are obviously violations of etiquette that are, are really trivial, and you don't really want to say that someone is a, is a terrible and wicked person because they've, they've you know, worn odd socks or something. You know. But on the other hand, some violations of etiquette offend, they hurt. Mm. And whenever someone's getting hurt, 
then we are in the domain of morality. We're in the domain of interpersonal relationships. And it seems to me that, yeah, you, I can, you, can, you can easily construct examples of violations of etiquette that you'd say are, are unethical. Because I was interviewing the, the Patricia Churchill, neurophilosopher, as she's sometimes called. And, I mean, on her view, you know, ethics is, is all about uh, managing our relations with other people. Simple as that. And on that view, etiquette and morality are clearly just on the same spectrum. The only difference is the seriousness of it. When it's not that serious, we say it's just etiquette. When it's more serious, we say it's a moral issue. Mm. And there's no sharp dividing line between the two. I, I don't usually agree with Patricia Shirtland, <laughs> but I'd, agree, I'd probably agree, I'd probably go along with that. The title is The, the Virtues of Our Vices. And we talked about rudeness, we talked about gossiping when they're unethical. But part of the book is actually about the, the good side of these things as well. We, haven't, we didn't say anything about the good side of rudeness. Perhaps we should come to that first. But in terms of gossiping, I mean, there's, there are good things about gossiping, aren't there? Right, I, and... Um, after, after I've narrowed down the domain to the kind of talk about others that is morally controversial, I then say, OK, you know, let's look at the arguments in favour of saying, under these circumstances, don't ever spill the beans. And, and I kind of, uh, to some extent, recognise that some of those arguments have merit, but they don't support a blanket condemnation of gossip, such as you find in, say, the Hebrew Bible or something like that. I then look at the many reasons that might be said in favour of um, gossip. For me, one of the most convincing and most important is simply this, that it's the way many social institutions work. Those of you who work in, a, in an office or in an organisation of any kind, you'll usually find there are informal formal channels of communication. Let's suppose you have to decide that these two people are going to work together on a project, right? You need to know whether they like each other or hate each other, whether they've had an affair, just bust up or whatever. If you don't know that information, you can't make an informed decision, but you're not going to get that information on official organisational memos. Right. So, in some ways, gossip, in that sense, talk about other people, which, which isn't lies and doesn't violate their rights, but talk about other people is oil in the machinery of many institutions. Mm. And what about rudeness? Sometimes rudeness could have um, pedagogical value. There are times when perhaps the only way to impress on someone that, you know, that you've had it up to here, that you've had enough, you know, that they've got to stop, the only way is maybe to swear at them, maybe to lose it a little bit and to violate a social convention. It's a way of um, getting through to them, right? That's one, one example. Another example would be where, let's suppose you think that someone is spoiling their kid really rotten or you think that someone is drinking too much. You're a close friend of this person. There's a social convention that says you mind your own business and you don't interfere in you know, people's private lives too much. But maybe there's a case here for saying you're drinking too much, you're spoiling your kid, you're spending too much. The person might get very offended, but still, what's the motive that you're doing this for? The motive is to help them. You know, the more you think about these things, it seems to be the case. There's, there's no behaviour under the sun where it's not on some kind of spectrum, where in some circumstances it's right. Country and Western, as we know, provides all the deep uh, lessons of life. Anyone knows a song, the, the Coward of the County illustrates this, right. doesn't he? You know, so, yeah, the study says, you, you, don't have to, you don't have to fight to be a man, but the song tells a story, as they all do, and there's one day he ends up having to punch the lights out of someone, concluding that, you know, sorry, Dad, but sometimes you do have to fight to be a man. Yeah. Is there anything so, so vicious that it's never a virtue? I, 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 think, um, I think cruelty. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine a situation where cruelty is justified. I mean, for instance, it was interesting, when, when um, Gaddafi fell, between being captured and being killed, he was kind of roughed up, rather. And even that, actually, a lot of people who had no sympathy whatsoever with Gaddafi 
I certainly had no sympathy with Gaddafi. You know, uh, still, we're a little bit troubled by the thought that cruelty was being inflicted on him. Mm. So I, I can't imagine when cruelty is good. Uh, now, one chapter I, I did want to come to was the one on humour. And I suppose one of the things that, sort of, if you think about sort of the ambiguity of things, the thing about humour is all about distasteful, offensive jokes. We can now tell some of these jokes under the cover that, well, of course, we're just interested in the philosophical analysis of them, <laughs> uh, which we are. Some of them are good. But you give some good examples of these. Now, one of the things about humour, and this, I think this is actually a really topical issue, and it's a good example of how this isn't actually trivial. People have died because they've told the wrong joke, effectively, in the form of a cartoon or in the form of a satire. People take this very, very seriously indeed. And it can sometimes appear that the rules are inconsistent. Now, I think you've got a good example of this. So, for example, you wouldn't tell um, uh, this joke, uh, what do you call a woman with two brain cells, pregnant, right? But there's another joke you said that nobody you know would object to. What do you call a man with half a brain, gifted, right? Is that just inconsistency, or is that actually a good reason why we have uh, different judgments there? I think it's a bit of both. But the interesting point is that there is a reason why we might want to make a difference. And the reason is that every, every joke pretty much has a victim. And what matters is the standing of the victim in the world, in his society. And the fact is that we don't have to feel sorry for men. I mean, men have been pretty much on top for a very long time. Women have been oppressed for a very long time. Women in, you know, in modern times have been uh, rectifying that situation to a large extent, but we're still kind of sensitive to the fact that there is still inequality, there is still oppression, uh, and so to some extent our, our anxiety over that joke reflects a concern that it might be a, a force continuing to oppress, whereas the, the joke about men, of course, maybe it helps to undermine their, their traditional authority. Mm. I mean, isn't that politically quite important, because people say objections like, oh, well, you know, we're not allowed to make jokes about Muslims, but, you know, you have Father Ted on the telly and people are always taking the mickey out Christians. But there is a difference. There is an important difference there. I mean, I, I think there is. Do you think there's a significant difference about jokes about Muslims and jokes about Christians in a Christian country? I, I, would, I would say that uh, you'd always want to contextualise this, mm. and that would be terribly important. If, if Muslims are a victimised minority in a society then jokes about Muslims could be quite harmful. To take an example, Irish jokes at one time were probably decidedly contributing to, to a harm that was being done to people of Irish descent. I think that's less, you know, much less true now. I mean, one of the interesting things about context, um, Slavoj Žižek talked about this. He was from former Yugoslavia. And he was saying before, you know, when it was still Yugoslavia, People would always, the first thing people would do when they met were they'd tell jokes about, you know, Croatians, Slovaks, whatever it might be. It was after the fall, and these countries were at war, that you couldn't say them. So there was there a sign that being able to tell the jokes was actually a sign of healthiness. Right, and, and a really good example of that is um, John Paul II, right, John Paul, who was Polish. Mm. Uh, when he became Pope, there was a, a spate of Polish jokes, uh, particularly in places like Chicago, Right. Polish jokes are basically like Irish jokes and blonde jokes and the like. But uh, several of the social scientists said, you, you need a subtle understanding here. These jokes were not ridiculing Poles so much. They were actually being told by Poles 
as expressions of pride. They were, it's like one, even though they were making fun of the Pope, saying he was going to wallpaper the Sistine Chapel or something like this, at the same time, it, they were expressions of pride that one of our boys has made it. Yeah, and it, did, and it does depend who kind of tells it and how right. they tell it as well. I mean, isn't it, this is one of the sort of really difficult things to put a finger on. You know, you can tell the same joke, but you can say it kind of with a sneer to a baying mob, or you can say it a little bit ironically to a different audience, and that makes all the difference. Right. And yet, and yet the problem is that I, mean, I suppose people want to know, is this joke an acceptable joke? Is that joke a not acceptable joke? And it's, it's not as simple as that. I'll say something that is probably somewhat controversial here, though, which is I think that we are, as a society, I, I'll say this about the United States, and I think also about the, the UK, which is I actually think we could, we could stand being a little bit more forgiving to our, towards ourselves and towards our, the members of our society. When someone makes a mistake, let's say they do tell a joke uh, or say something a bit off-colour, right? There is a tendency, it seems to me, to, for every, the hounds to bay and the person has to um, apologise in public and then resign and then go and live on a desert island somewhere. It seems to me, couldn't we sort of say, well, people are going to make mistakes sometimes. And does it have to necessarily indicate that they have a deep black stain at the centre of their heart? That they are deeply sexist, deeply racist, deeply prejudiced, or simply that uh, we're not perfect and we may need, okay, we, we lapse sometimes. But that, I mean, that is an interesting point because I think we've inherited this kind of cod Freudian assumption, I think, that it's the mistakes and the slips actually reveal our true selves more than our normal behaviour. We've got to get that balance quite right, haven't we, between not reading too much into a, a little bit of action but also not ignoring it. It's a fair point, but my focus was on the thought that we, we could be more forgiving. And this applies beyond humour to also things like rudeness and, um, and some of the other things I talk about, where uh, one, one of the themes in the book that comes, I come back to again and again is that in everyday life, we make incredibly complicated um, moral judgments because the number of variables in play when you're deciding whether to tell someone a secret about someone else. You know, I mean, you've got to know what's your relationship to the person you're talking about? What's your relationship to the person you're talking to? What's their relationship with each other? How likely is it this will hurt them in some way? How likely is it will hurt someone else? You know, there's so many factors to take into account. And yet most of the time, I think we do pretty well to navigate uh, the, these um, considerations. But we're going to make mistakes. And I think that Moral life for us is more difficult, I think, than it used to be. And the reason for that is that our society is in constant flux. The conventions are in constant flux. You think about, for instance, the relations between men and women. You think about um, the issue of homosexuality or something like that. And so there's going to be anxiety, there's going to be confusion, and we're going to make mistakes. I, I think we could be more forgiving towards ourselves. Uh, thanks, Emrys, so much for a really interesting session. Cheers. That's it for this edition. You can keep up to date with what I'm doing at microphilosophy.net or by following the Microphilosophy Twitter feed. If you want to come along to one of the recordings, take a look at foils.co.uk or ideasfestival.co.uk. The next podcast should be out in just a few weeks. So until then, if nothing prevents, goodbye.